0: Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. The With your Keepers of Mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman, Sanctum Socorum, and be inspired.
1: Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Mark, and with me tonight is Keeper Bob. woohoo, And Keeper Jen.
2: Hello, hello!
1: Tonight, we venture into one of the worlds of Philip Jose Farmer with Maker of the Universes, first of his World of Tears series.
2: The story follows Robert Wolfe, a man disenchanted with his life and his marriage. One day, while looking at a new house, Wolfe discovers a strange horn in the basement. Blowing the horn, Wolfe is transported to a strange new world, the World of Tears. Wolf finds himself initially in an Edenic paradise known as Okeanos. This region is the first level of the planet, which contains a number of tiers like a wedding cake separated by vast mountain ranges. The entire planet is ruled over by a cruel and mysterious lord named Jadwin, who created it. Okeanos consists of a beach, an ocean, and a small forest populated by nymph-like humans who originated in and near ancient Greece. In this new world, Wolf regains his youth and vigor and falls in love with a local woman named Chryseis, who lived in Troy at the time of the Trojan War.
1: Yeah, I liked this book a lot.
2: (laughs) We might actually all agree on this one.
1: It was a very interesting story that precursed so many other stories that I'd read, I guess is a good way of putting it. It was clear to see the influence it had on other novels that I knew very well and I'd never read this one.
0: Well, and it's funny because this novel still shows off some of Philip Jose Farmer's favorite things to do, like when Kikaha uh, says, guess what I'm called on this jungle level. And of course, referencing Tarzan and Philip Jose Farmer wrote two Tarzan novels. He wrote a biography of Tarzan. He tied Tarzan to Sherlock Holmes and all these other characters. He loves sort of playing with those big old characters. So that was kind of a, a neat little nod in there that he dropped. Philip Jose Farmer is certainly another author like Lloyd Alexander, who is worth raving about. I've never read anything bad by Philip Jose Farmer. I mean, in a 62 year career, he wrote 60 novels, over a hundred novellas and short stories. And he gave us the world of tears, river world, Kokarsa, uh, which is essentially implied to be Tarzan, immortal and traveling through time. He won three Hugo Awards, three Lifetime Achievement Awards. Um, Philip Jose Farmer was on his game. And his use of language is so evocative and so wonderful, and he describes things. He doesn't just say, and I saw this scary bird, and move on. He actually tells you a little bit about the scary bird. You can see it. It's very different from some of the other appendix and stuff we've read. Yeah, the eagles
2: had reddish heads and greenish feathers and a lot of use of colors. He described things, but his language was not overly flowery and... This is my first Philip Jose Farmer, and yeah, this was actually pretty cool.
1: Yeah, this is the first time I'd read him also, and I'm interested in Bob. If you've read other works by him, have you read other Maker of the Universe, World of Tears series? I haven't it just- read.
0: I haven't read any more of the World of Tears. This was this was so fun because the series was new to me. I've read the River World series, which was really great, and then I read a series that was essentially assembled by him and written by some other folks, which was The Dungeon, which was also absolutely remarkable and. If Philip Jose Farmer's characters tend to be similar. They tend to to start off as an everyman and then not be. But there was something about this as I was reading this, especially Jen, as you're talking about his language is an overly florid. Did anybody else stop to think that maybe the Lords were actually the wizards of the dying earth? Because he loved to play with other <laughs> people's creations. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, so the Lords have technology, but they don't know how to use it anymore. They've just got stuff and they can make it work. Um, they've got these big tanks where they're making their own creatures and putting brains into them
2: this is the bio things yeah yeah i was
0: like yeah it's interesting
2: but even that shift in technology level as we are finally exposed to it it was handled so smoothly that it wasn't off-putting because it really is kind of a shift into a different genre from what we'd been dealing with for the first two-thirds or more of the book so i really liked the way he worked it in
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where because of his love of kind of playing with other people's stuff, famously, he got a very angry and invective laden uh, phone call from Kurt Vonnegut after he wrote a book using a pseudonym, which is a fictional author who appears in Kurt Vonnegut's works. It just it seems to me like he was not afraid to play with things. So this kind of came off as more approachable Vancean.
1: Interesting. Yeah, because I think when you're talking about the technology shifts, I mean, clearly he was trying to articulate in a lot of these different scenes or settings, right? Each tier has its own sort of unique historical but also technological aspect to it and that shift to that final tier you know and we can discuss how much we want to reveal of the culmination of this this novel but i don't think it gives anything away to say that wolf eventually makes it to that final tier where technology is this advanced system and it's beyond the understanding of even the lords who are still exposed to it in some cases they're just springing gears and hoping for the best but (laughs) but but i I did appreciate that it was almost like he was pre- dating a campaign of a role-playing game, you know, where the protagonists are going from world to world to world, and they're encountering each of these new domains that are, that are set up before them. And it had that sort of feel to me. And I think he was able to convey that, you know, both through those words, but also just through his handling of the historical aspects and the technology aspects of each of those settings as well.
0: Well, and the settings for his series tend to be very grand and sweeping. In this one, there's Atlantis. There's this, kind of this strange fairyland. There's this medieval-style level. There's essentially the American plains prior to the arrival of uh, a, settlers. Of yeah. yeah, and so you've got all of these people, and they have they, they have been taken from those times and places. And he did something and similar in there. Yeah. Yeah, he did something similar in River World, where everybody who died woke up alongside this river. And so you had Roman centurions and Mark Twain, and he liked to kind of play with those things. In some ways, this is a very typical farmer novel, but it is no less enjoyable for that.
2: But it was a good way of including those multiple environments without it just being, okay, and they take a boat and now they're on this next continent. Hyra's Journey springs to mind. Mm-hmm. They travel, so they're in different ecosystems and everything, but they're not really different environments. They're not different worlds. Right. This was a really good way of segregating those. And, yeah, Mark, I think you're totally right. Each could be its own session, mm-hmm. each tier.
1: Oh, come on. This is a setting. It's like six box sets. Exactly. exactly. Oh,
2: bite your tongue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think when I was reading it, the one problematic point I had was, and this ties into what you were saying, Bob, about his sort of grand sweeping vision. He has a very much a tendency in this novel, at least, and I don't know if this is true of his other works, to have a very abridged approach to storytelling elements that other authors take great Right in detail, right. I mean, there's, it's almost like a montage, right? When he gets into the training, or you know how he's climbed another thirty thousand feet, or just bypass the details of that story. Whereas the, you take a token, very true. Day one, and this is what we ate for breakfast, and this is what you know. It, it's a very different type of storytelling than that.
2: Well, they did that for the first couple of days on the first climb.
0: Well, there's a spot where it's like, and then four months passed, and... Right, exactly, yeah. And there, and I lost my baby, and... <laughs> but but <laughs> right. for me, he's skipping the minutiae. Yeah. It's the stuff that goes on between your adventure sessions. Okay, so uh, we're ending tonight. You guys are traveling to the city. It, it's going to be a couple weeks. You start the next week. Okay, so you guys travel a couple weeks. You got to the city. If there's a random encounter, he would have told us about
1: it. That's really what even more echoed that sense of, like, this is a story that's very akin to how a role-playing game feels. And, mm-hmm. and I think that how much he was able to condense into this one book was very intriguing from that point of view because another author, this would have been a multi-volume right. story. Oh, this would have been 117 novels from Robert Jordan. Yeah something, yeah, something that would have taken the the hero going from his first introduction to the finally confronting the end you know, villain. That was all done in what 270 pages or you know, mm-hmm. less than that And my i mean kind of intrigued to see you know what the rest of the series is since there's another six or seven books in the in the series just to see right. how much the scope just gets beyond this because i mean this felt really grand and really world plane traveling in a, in a lo- large sense and so it, it was a very different approach than I think what the authors that we had looked at.
2: Even though the ending was abrupt, it was still satisfying and could have been a complete saga that could have wrapped up the entire thing. So I'm almost a little worried to go on and read the further books in this because is it going to be as clean and tidy and concise and are we going to get these completely different tiers now or are we going to continue with some of the same characters and... And really, where can they go from here? that sort of thing. So I, I think this one was nice and complete as is.
0: Well, and the the series itself, it, it continues following Robert Wolf and Kickaaha, Paul Janice Finnegan. And from like book three or four on, it really focuses more on Finnegan than Wolf, which when you finish this first book, you understand why. And it kind of delves deeper into into who the lords are. And, uh, and I come to think of it, you're talking about how this sort of feels like a role-playing game. If I recall correctly, there is a uh, French language role-playing game that was released back in 95 that was inspired by this. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. It's really neat and fun stuff. And and some of it certainly feels very DCC. Some of it feels very MCC. And some of it's just really kind of out there and fun.
1: The other thing that was really reminding me of a role-playing game is that there is so much murder hoboing that goes on. In- <laughs> <laughs> this, oh, yeah. I mean, he just he walks into a castle, let's kill that sentry and bypass him. Let's uh, kill these these random savages, you know, that are everywhere. It just there is no there is no conscience at all, you
0: know. In and actually you did. touch upon the the one the one part of this book that is like most books of of its time, parts of it are a little bit problematic in oh, yeah, in portrayal yeah. of race. Although it doesn't hammer on it and it's certainly not like Tarzan, I'm white, I'm superior, but there're certainly Small sections of the book that made me go, oh, yeah, couldn't write that today. Oh,
2: like two or three lines, maybe. I was the actually The entire impressed. section with
0: the savages was...
2: Uh... Okay, that was a few paragraphs. But <laughs> I was actually impressed with his treatment of women in the book. He was not this total misogynist hero like, say, Tarzan or mm-hmm. any of them. So that one impressed me as an author there.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it is worth cautioning readers, though, that this book, at least, there is a bit of that 60s, 70s vibe to the sexism in his attitude. And the sex. And the sex, yeah. You're right, he does do a little bit to sort of balance, you know, the female characters and, that they have in the story. But the way he describes his kind of shrewish wife in the beginning, the way that Paul Phineas, or Kick-A-Cow, is that how it Kick-A-Hot you know he's leading the centaurs to kill the men of this this oh, yeah. other tribe and he casually leans over and kisses the leftover women from the other tribe it's i mean it's a, it's a little bit like the, of a um, to the hero in the storytelling that i think is more about it's time than it is necessarily about anything else
2: it was far less sexist than some of the things we've read
1: yeah it is.
2: <laughs> that's all i was saying <laughs> yeah but i can also see how this was likely a huge influence on the creation of dungeon crawl classics because look at all of the different and unique creatures in there
1: oh yeah yeah
2: this wasn't the centaur that he knew of in mythology this I one love was different that.
1: i love that description you know obviously the the hero in this case has You know other reasons for sort of the knowledge, but his reasoning for why this was designed this way, right? The centaur that had big lungs, you know, in order to yeah. Oh my god, when he started getting into that, well, well, you know, the lungs have to be done like
0: this, and Mm -hmm. and the digestive system would have to be like this because otherwise it wouldn't work. And so it's got this big mouth and big. I was like, that sounds really creepy, and I'm really glad there's not pictures. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Oh, but can you imagine if Doug Kovacs were to draw it?
0: Oh my god, yeah. Um, well, let's, why don't we move over to things to stats. Sure. That sounds great.
2: Things that need art pieces put to them.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Those freaky centaurs certainly on my list. I loved the concept of zebrillas, the zebra striped gorillas <laughs> with long legs and short arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were like gorillas with human proportions for their arms and legs. And that was, that was fun. I liked the, uh, Histiochus, the sailfish. Oh, uh, well, yeah. The that was mollusk, top of
2: my list, yeah. Yeah, the
0: mollusk that was a living sailboat.
2: It was absolutely creepy. The mast was cartilage. The sail was a thin membrane. Bit of flesh, yeah. But creepy was the blood it,
0: berries. That was but, the creepiest part.
2: But you control it by stepping on exposed nerve centers. And then it just sucks up and throws it out the valve in the back. And that's how it moves. So wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> pulled water through it, and then it had the sail, so it could, it could do both. But really, controlling that is not much different than, than horseback riding, where you're kneeing a horse one way, or you're pulling its head one way. It just, it seems a little bit oogier, because it's like, ooh, exposed flesh. But the blood berries, the, oh, you know, we, we've got all these all these nuts and fruits and everything, but you know, you can eat the blood berries, and the blood berries are growing up out of this thing, and they taste like blood, steak, and like shrimp sauce. <laughs> and I'm like, that really gross when you stop to think this is probably its reproductive cycle uh, Ew. Ah.
2: <laughs> or it's dinner yeah,
0: yeah th- then there was well it was growing out of it i mean it was Ew. part of it okay there was the moving eyes on. of the <laughs> lord yeah moving on there was the eyes of the lord the what are they, the ravens. 14 yeah the big ravens they were like man-sized ravens podarge's eagles which we mentioned you know with the red heads and kind of the green feathers and they could all talk I'd like to know more about water dragons, because I kind of pictured them like a large version of earthly water dragons, which are sort of... eelish. No, No, um, they're more like seahorses, the real ones. And speaking of real ones, how about the fact that he had the American lion, this ancient, extinct big cat that dwarfed tigers that were more liger-sized than, than anything else. That was... For monsters, those were awesome. I'd want to do... I, I kind of flash back to Dragon Magazine used to do, like, Giants of Literature was a series they did. And I always kind of glossed over it when I was a kid. But what they were doing is they were statting people like, you know, they, they did Gulliver, but they also did Ulysses. They, they were statting all of these big major characters. And, of course, I'd want to stat Kickaha, the human trickster, mm-hmm. and Wolf in, in, that, in that same vein. Podarge and the Lords could easily be patrons.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, and uh, each of the lords would be their own.
0: Yes, and it would definitely almost different like, flavors. It'd be like setting up the uh, the warring factions for uh, the nine hundred ninety eighth Wizards Conclave. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these different factions and how they got together. Because you read through, some of them do get along because they're lonely. And then there's the Portal crescents and and the Silver Horn. Of course, those are the things that I grabbed out of there. I'm like, yeah, I need to, I need to, <laughs> I need to stat these up.
2: Okay, so you stole my sailfish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> can you say histioth? <laughs> Crap, I had it a minute ago.
2: <laughs> Histoikithis?
0: Yes, okay, you yes. can. Fine, be yes. that way.
2: <laughs> uh, there was the creepy centipede serpent with human feet.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. With no legs, just feet.
2: Yep, just feet the that, that look disturbingly, disturbingly eating,
1: human. Eating a dead growl or growl? I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That had like the seal of Solomon on it. Yeah. It's something like black diamond spots and crimson seals of Solomon, which I thought was a a good description. So
2: that is so freaky. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And you could even stat up the items they were eating on, on the beach. Yeah. That were affecting their aging process because that was kind of neat. He regressed. And he felt better than he ever had. All of a sudden, he's a young man. And well, was that it's a few food? weeks and yeah. months. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that the food or
0: just being there? I wasn't sure myself.
2: Um, definitely a combination of all of it, I would think. I mean, he felt horrible until he did finally eat something.
0: Oh, that is true.
2: So it it was clearly what was keeping all of those critters younger. And I like the fact that on one of the tiers, they visited a town and visited just a little white wizard to get some alchemical stuff to help remove the dye that they had put over their bodies as a disguise. Yeah. And I think those kind of NPCs are my favorite because they're usually the ones that are just glossed over. And I like to make them a little bit bigger in my games. And, you know, honestly, with him regressing in age, that was one of the reasons I didn't really care if he got back home. I didn't really care if he went back to his unhappy marriage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, neither did he. (laughs) No, no.
2: Well, so far.
0: But come on, a 66-year-old protagonist. That was just awesome at the beginning.
2: Yeah, that was... I find myself not even caring what happened to his wife or the poor guy that was going to sell the house to him. And oh, he just yeah. had to
0: repair a window, yeah, <laughs> right,
1: and maybe some bullet holes.
2: <laughs> Whoopsie. Uh, what about you, Mark?
1: Oh, things of stat. I was going to go back to some other notes I had because they, all the discussions about you know his amnesia and all, all those things. Just you haven't read the Amber series by Zelazny yet, have you? No. And that may be one that we're going to cover, but we should. He directly attributes that Amber series inspiration to Philip Jose Farmer's World Tears. And and there's a lot of oh. information and in parallels to it. It's definitely worth reading that after reading this in, in some context, right? Just to, so you have the idea of what it is. But that just, there's a sidetrack. It's um it, When we get to that one, which eventually we will, I'm sure, it's good to have this as a precursor that informs that network. But there was a couple of things that you didn't mention that I, I really liked. One was that there was some sort of bat-like creature, the bipeds that were in the cave that they made... I
0: couldn't find what they were called.
1: <laughs> I couldn't find the what they were called either. They were described as, you know, these two Bat and a half feet high five, creatures. Like a random encounter. You know, they, they were never seen again. They didn't have any other purpose in the story. But it was just, he encountered them. They almost took Wolf out. And this, just the way they were so creepily described and how easy it was for him to succumb to them. Yeah. The deadly silence they did and they were like just nipping on him in the silence and, you know, there's no noise beyond like his own breathing as, you know, as he was like sort of struggling. It's such a creepy little scene and, and mm-hmm. I, I love those creatures. <laughs> this is a little bit off, but when he described the, uh, the nights the Yiddish knights, I was just like, wow, that's, that's something... You can't really stat a Yiddish knight, but, you know, the fact that he was, he was historically, you know, sort of drawing this parallel that these Jewish transplants came and, and adapted the feudal society and created their own feudal system in parallel with the German Teutonic Knights. I, I love that. You could potentially have like, knights of different societies, you know, that are maybe not historically based, but just kind of tied in that kind of loose framework. Well, and you could certainly stat up that specific one as well. Yeah, so he, he was an NPC of note, you know, in, in terms of this group. So I like that quite a lot. I mean, the the, uh, the monsters, there were a number of them. The, the, we didn't talk about the Grolls themselves, if that's how you pronounce oh, it. Oh, yeah. This kind of idea of these almost Vat-like creatures, like you were saying, Bob, you know, are these creations that are made in the laboratory by one of the lords. But they also are, have some independence, you know, that's hinted at. You know, there's always a sense instance of rebellion that's being carried through with them and there's always a sense that they're, they're, the Lord fears what they would do. You know, if
0: they—it's mentioned while they might have been created by one of the Lords, it's mentioned that they arrived here through one of the portals. Right. So, yeah, it's—are they a creation of the Lords? Are they some sort of invading barbaric species? What are they? I and they're, thought it was—they're lumpy that- and brutish. And
2: I thought it was mentioned that they were sent to a different tier via the portal.
0: Well, they actually mentioned—I thought them arriving. On the world through Hmm. one of the portals.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. That's problematic. (laughs) But they were also kind of apish, right?
1: don't remember the first description. description. the, The
2: description was a little bit vague, I thought.
0: Well, yeah. They were just
2: supposed to be this horror, this horrific force chasing them.
0: The first time we're introduced to them and they're described, we don't have a name for them. And so that kind of makes it a little harder to figure out. So it doesn't really link that connection in your brain.
1: Yeah. They seem like they have their own kind of culture that could be dived into to make them feel like a real race They were always antagonistic and spitting and hissing even when offered help and and things like that. But they had some sort of brutish cunning. Their ploy to retrieve the horn after it's presumably fallen into the, the water... Their idea that they would send, well, they, they're they're deathly afraid of water, but they can send Wolf in. But then just the idea that the pair of the girl that snuck into the castle and retrieved the horn and then snuck into Wolf's room.
2: Yeah, way too cunning. Yeah, I mean, there's,
1: there's cunning. like a sense of this bestial cunning that if they don't have like a, a high level of intelligence, they, they're able to figure and work things out and adapt you know between they're not thrown off by the fact that they're suddenly in atlantis or they're suddenly in german teutonic setting it's they just had all these interesting characteristics that was fun okay
2: so they're black and furry they've got short legs that look like a dog's hind legs and the head is subhuman and the whole body and face and everything have those knobs and clots of flesh on them (laughs)
0: Giving it a half. The very
2: first view of it, because the only thing Farmer repeats about the description of these things in the interactions is he hit him on one of those knobby bumps or hit him right between those fleshy bumps on the body. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is pretty much just, no, you can flip back to the first chapter and check it out if you want to review.
0: (laughs) Then there was the other weird thing where. Like a kangaroo rat, they don't drink water. Their body breaks down fat to provide them with the required liquids.
2: And they're that terrified was- of water.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's all really creepy and strange.
2: <laughs> Go DCC. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And then getting back to the point you made earlier, Jen, the last thing that I had in mind were those automatons that they encounter at the culmination of the mm-hmm. novel, where suddenly twenty of them appear. You know, after they're sort of tested by this one, but I I love that again. They they sort of charge in like any party would. They're not thrown <laughs> thrown out by uh by by what they see you know ahead of them, but it's this new thing that they don't know how to fight and and how many of the you know the ape allies it'll take out and and that sort of thing. And I, I thought that was a nice way to introduce the technology into this as well
2: right and then the automatons started learning and using the same attacks against them
1: right right that's creepy. that would be be a cool monster if somebody performs a mighty deed and the monster repeated that mighty deed you know or had had that as a special ability or something like that where it gained some of the special ability of whatever it was attacking or being attacked by i think that'd be kind of a neat Neat mimic, but it's like a combat mimic, you know, so. oh,
2: and and this is the point where we apologize to our listeners if something of this nature ever makes it into publication. Um, it's probably Mark's fault, and <laughs> <laughs>
0: doom. <laughs>
1: But there's a lot of fun stuff in this, you know, in terms of he has a lot of these kind of brief one word or one encounter descriptions, and you can take that away from this and take it to your own game. It doesn't necessarily have like this huge arc in the story, which I I found uh, refreshing too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there were random encounters. Mm -hmm. It was really nice. So I suppose since we've statted things, we should actually bring them to the table. I'm thinking the punch nuts, which is the rancid fermented fruit in coconut shells, would probably be frowned on by your players. (laughs) Right up there with rotting meat.
0: I don't know. You could give a coconut filled with sangria. They'd be fine.
2: (laughs) That'd be far too pleasant. At least for the way this was described. Give them a coconut
0: shell filled with pinga. And uh and they'll they'll hate you for like the yeah. first twenty minutes and then they won't remember anything.
2: Yeah, as a judge, I'm not too cool with that either, so we'll skip the punch nuts. Mollusks I kinda wanna just clean some mollusks and have them available as methods of water transportation for games where you have minis. I mean, if we're going to be creepy about it, let's go all out, right? Yeah. I do like the fact that with the tiers, you essentially have a flat earth, which means easier mapping at the table. And And hey,
0: explained The physics just don't work here. It's different. I'm 30,000 feet up in the air and there's still air.
2: Mm -hmm. Go with it.
0: It's magic.
2: (laughs) And, you know, every level could be its own session or adventure, like we talked about.
0: That's a lot of Dwarven Forge.
2: I know, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Ooh, hey, Stefan. (laughs) I'm not a millionaire, I can't afford that. For audio, it's gonna sound corny, but you could probably find a movie soundtrack based on each of these environments. Or based on each of these encounters, even like the little uh, impromptu jousting that they came across along the road. You could theoretically Hans Zimmer your entire way through this.
0: Oh, don't Hans Zimmer your way through this.
2: (laughs) Or you could get the soundtracks based on environment. You know, you're in the woodsy place, you're just doing the exploration thing. Okay, Lord of the Rings. You're in the plane swept area. Well, that's easy with all of the Native Americans around you. Dances with Wolves comes to mind, of course. And for the area that Bob declares is a little bit uh, controversial, throw in the soundtrack to the movie Lumumba. Just because.
0: <laughs> for those not familiar with the movie, it's really depressing and it's a real story.
2: Well, it's based on a true story. So, of course, it's depressing if it has to do with Africa. But it also has authentic African music yes, because music. it's not a huge movie studio release. It's more of an independent film. How about you, Mark? Got anything more exciting than Mollusks?
1: Mm, no, I mean, I really like the idea of constructing some sort of model of this tier world that's super high. I, I just I just love the idea of like presenting that as a challenge, you know, for the table and, and making it sort of like this grandiose campaign style feeling to say, you know, you guys are here now, you guys are here now. But you could do that with maybe the Dwarven Forge stuff. You could do that with, you know, some sort of simple tiered styrofoam or cardboard
2: oh yeah papercraft
1: yeah just i mean i I could see doing something like that on a on a scale that kind of translates to this is what you see you see basically this huge shadow that's blocking out the sun and this you know you guys have this model but you are literally a continent away and and let's go explore that that's it's kind of an intriguing idea but i don't know if most tables (laughs) would want to get into that much effort the other idea i had kind of goes along with this flat earth concept that you mentioned jen where each of these settings are essentially like its own sort of laboratory. And I remember Mm. playing in a game that Michael Curtis ran at North Texas RPG one time. I think it must have been a Metamorphosis Alpha game where he just broke out the play dinosaurs from that tube of dinosaurs. like 20 dinosaurs (laughs) that are, you know, varied colors and things like that. It's like, well, this is what you see on this level of Metamorphosis Alpha. Well, taking that to the sort of like the next, you know, series is – you see the dinosaurs. You see you, now. You see the prehistoric Neolithic scene of all the saber-toothed tigers. You know, you get these tubes of natural as you can get a, a museum or something like that, and this it com- contains like this variety of animals. Well, you know, you populate your map with these different creatures just to give a kind of feeling of you know the environment that they're traveling through on each of these tiers. And I think you could you could just vary it up to where you have your own tiers, right? You have you have you maybe you have your dinosaur level. It's anything's possible and it's it's sort of like what Mike Curtis was doing with that Metamorphosis Alpha game. Suddenly you find yourself in this sort of like laboratory environment and you know what they are as a player, but you know, as a character, you don't really know what these creatures can do and how they might interact with you. Some of them might be intelligent, some of them may not be. So those are the kind of things that I was I was kind of inspired by. Playing with minifigs, I guess. <laughs> Animal <Yeah>. animals.
2: <laughs> and I would like to break the conception that the polka-dotted creatures are friendly. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the first that he encountered, and it was friendly. And I'm like, yeah. of course it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what about you, Bob? First of all, I'm betting the Michael Curtis adventure with dinosaurs was Level of the Lost.
1: It, it was eventually, yeah. At the time, I think we were playtesting it, so... Oh,
0: I, yeah, I'm sure, because we're... Yeah, that was... You mean as
2: opposed to Dinosaur Crawl Classics? Oh,
0: yeah. 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 That that would be Mark pulling out dinosaurs, not Mark pulling out dinosaurs. There's a difference. <laughs> level of Lost, great adventure. And, and you're right, it really does fit in with that. Uh, here's your world, and here's something different. You know, for me... Uh, while while Jen is like, "Oh, punch nuts bad, Punch nut's bad." I was like, "You know, a coconut shell filled with like banana pudding mixed with maybe some grape jello or something. So it's sort of fruity, but be kind of strange would be a a, a neat way to to sort of." Uh, Synthesize that, but prop-wise, there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, sure, you you could do like the strange buffalo horn and put buttons on it so you can play it. But (laughs) for me, what really stuck out to me was the time that he spent on the Great Plains and, and the various tribes and their interactions and so for me a a good portion of it even when character names were changing and he was no longer Kikaha and he was something else in the background even though he was of white European descent Everywhere that character went, the music that was in my mind was Native American. And as opposed to like dances with wolves. Because the trickster, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to dances with wolves, though, or all of that crappy new age quote unquote Native American music that's out there.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Like any music by the group Lakota Thunder, which is a real Lakota group doing real Lakota music. Matter of fact, their album Way of Life is brilliant there's some really good compilation albums out there like the american indian ceremonial and war dances and there's another one called the unconquered spirit and it's got you know cheyenne war songs and all sorts of, of really great stuff that is authentic it's not just you know somewhat of native american descent with a flute I can appreciate that,
2: yeah.
0: And that to me, I mean, like when they when they stop as the huge herd of bison is crossing the plain, and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting because there's nothing else they can do. It's that primal, untouched, unspoiled land. In a way, like, um, and this might be a, a weird comparison, but watching Black Panther, Wakanda is a vision of Africa never colonized, and the great Plains in the world of tears are a vision of north america never colonized yeah so there's some idyllic traits there there's also some not so idyllic traits but it's really neat to see and so for me it was that music that really clung to me hey cool yeah well it was it was inspirational speaking of which mark what sort of inspirations and reasons did you pull from this?
1: Uh, This is a little bit hard because I I think my inspirations are are very related to things that I've written because of the, uh, we'll get into that in a second, but I guess some of the other things that inspired me near the end tier, you know, with its sort of technology that's there, but not well understood. Some of that is very MCC, some of it's very Age of the Atomic Overlord, the Edgar Johnson Mm -hmm. module which everything sort of feels it has that that sort of like mixture of fantasy and technology, which I think is a good sort of segue that you could take something like that and make it into a a similar adventure on an MCC level or or even on on a purple planet, you know, for that matter. There's aspects to the fact that there are these relic-like devices that are used to transport between the tiers and between other worlds, you know, it has a, very kind of similar feel to how you, are, you know, how you activate relics in Purple Planet in terms of its sequencing and, and matching them up. So I, I like I like that aspect as well. The thing that hits a little too close to home, and, and it's just really because it seems a little odd to be referencing things that I put out there, but. One of the inspirations for a couple of things I've written is the Amber series, you know, where this amnesiac sort of introduction is a trope. And it's, you know, obviously it's a trope throughout a lot of other fantasy works as well. And reading Philip Jose Farmer just reinforced, you know, how much that legacy is tied to other authors and other works. There's the holiday module I put out is is very much a inspired by an amnesiac sort of experience and, and rediscovering who your character is through that scratch off character sheet.
2: Oh, perfect for emergent play then.
1: Right. So the Twilight of the Sol- Solstice trying to take what is a, you know, is a clear kind of fantasy idea or concept and apply it at the role playing table in some mechanical sense, whether that's how successful that is or not, I think is one of the things that depends on the players and the judge. The other one is that project I did where you guys got to play in play test and it came out in the recent damn magazine, uh, which is while the gods laugh, you know, where you are literal and going through recurring experience. Oh. And, and again, that was, yeah, that was so much fun. That's leaning uh, that very would definitely heavily. definitely fit. Yeah, leaning very yeah. heavily on on this this idea of the protagonists don't know who they are or what their abilities are. You, you find out multiple times, you know, throughout this that Wolf is known for his strength. You know, just like his inhuman strength, almost. You know, he can lift boulders over his head. He can out wrestle the centaurs. You know, where they were these deadly foes, and it's it's one of these things that. He's always known he's been strong, but he doesn't know the origins of that. And he's always known he's somewhat unusual, but he doesn't really think of that in those terms. And so it's it's it just kind of plays into that. So the, I, while I hate to bring those up, just because it's it seems a little odd to do that for me as a <laughs> in that in that context. But I think those are those are two things that are very directly related to that thematic element that. Philip Jose Farmers, one of the originators of in terms of, you know, he came before the inspiration that I was taking, you know, in the case of the Zelazny stories. So I think those...
2: Those make perfect sense. This is a book about blowing a horn, so a loud,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. you know... <laughs> 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 All right, I'll pass Just it on to Bob before before I, before I go on anymore.
0: <laughs> well, right off the bat, I thought that the new zine Primal Tales from Panda Head Publishing, uh, which is Brendan LaSalle and Brett Brooks, I thought that would be kind of a perfect way to... Tweak it here and there, and you could use any of these weird sentient animals, and you could you could bring them to life really easy. You don't have to sit and okay, well, I wanna I wanna run a zabrilla. Well, now I've got to make a class for it. Uh, I wanna run uh, a grawl, and I've got to make a class. Animal Tales, I think, gives you the tools that you would need. A, a little reskinning here, a little reskinning there, maybe a, a couple small mods, and and you could do it. And so that really that new addition to the uh, community output, I think, is very fitting for this piece. The other thing that really leapt my mind, when you were talking about the automatons, I don't know if anybody else went there, but my mind went straight to the Kovacs cover for Frozen in Time. Oh, yeah. With, you know, kind of this robot and these primitive people. And the more I started thinking about Frozen in Time, again, you know, you change the cavemen to these weird cat-eyed or mer-ish denizens of the of the lower level of the world of tears who are primitive and just live to eat and celebrate life and pick up litter as it turns out and uh uh, and just change it change the the cave into that and give frozen time a little bit of a reskin and it's a world of tears adventure it really is it's not a stretch at all and so you could go from frozen in time and they can have that moment of realization that their world is not what they thought it was sort of like the realization characters have when they're playing metamorphosis alpha and the players know they're on a starship and eventually the characters might know the characters have that that moment of clarity and you could use the end of frozen in time to give them that moment of clarity and then just move forward through the world of tears that's cool uh, this book itself is is so rich and i wasn't really kidding when i said you know for a campaign setting it could easily be six boxes it's sort of like under mountain in scope you could spend years exploring this world just from the information in this book let alone the rest of the series and so, so frozen in time Or uh, the tribe of Aug and the Gift of Sus would be great starting points with just a little bit of reskinning. You could do the same thing with sailors, really. Rather than going into a catacomb underneath the old keep, maybe they're climbing down the cliffside at the edge of the world and going into the caves and caverns there. Where if you fall through, you're just going to hang forever. It would be it would be very easy to do, and uh, yeah.
2: Are you done waxing poetic?
0: <laughs> I just it's I'm just it's so good. Uh, so okay, Jen, what do you have?
2: You're adorable. I gotta say, just judging from that opening and the cover of a module, and then actually looking in and seeing, yeah, okay, there are some very similar overlying themes. Moon slaves of the cannibal kingdom. You've got that ape-like creature running after the heroes. That's just the cover. Like I said, there's some similar thematic things. You always want to overthrow the hierarchy. When Wolf was hanging from the hole in the bottom of the world, my brain went to hole in the sky, and I started actually thinking of Criseus as the lady in blue, Mm. Which made the book a little bit weird for me for (laughs) a couple of minutes. And then I had to just kind of pull myself back and go, wait a minute, wait a minute.
0: This would be the sequel, Hole in the World.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. I was like, well, that that could have gone differently. And it's interesting because I'm giving my list in the order in which they just popped into my head. So, of course, as he's climbing these 30,000 feet to get up to the next tier, The Vertical Halls, one of our third-party publishers, Other Selves, put out this little digest-sized mod in both English and Spanish. It is all about you can't breach a tower from the ground floor. You have to go to the top, and there's a lot of encounters while you're on the wall. Okay, this book actually put some of those into perspective. I'm like, why would that be so difficult? Oh, because you're only hanging on with one hand. Yeah, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Go ahead and load that crossbow.
1: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Exactly. And then, of course, once they get into... Uh, I'll try this. Adequizoruz... Yeah, we'll skip that. Once they get into the <laughs> final tower, <laughs> all right, it's no secret that the mosaic hallway in the Emerald Enchanter is near and dear to me. And Farmer's detailing of the hallway murals as they were entering just... Okay, that really resonated. That's nice. And I've already written this down as this is one of the things that I could see as a dual inspiration here. Because there is a very strong similarity in guards in the Emerald Enchanter.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: The Emerald, for lack of better words, golems? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if I would call them automatons, but yeah. Um Yeah, you could essentially play the Storming the Castle routine using at least the first half of the Emerald Enchanter. So I I think rather than completely reskinning all of these things, you can take the pieces and parts from these and kind of paste them together as you get to each section. Like the vertical halls, of course, isn't going to come into play unless you're trying to traverse to the next tier. Yeah. Or go back. Down if you actually want to do it that way for some weird reason. But I'm more a fan of instead of doing a complete overlay on this particular one, because there are so many environments and just the varieties of inhabitants on each and every tier that is visited, we could throw in the entire Dungeon Crawl Classics catalog, even going <laughs> back to number zero. And so, right, so that's going
0: to bring us to our DCC feature for the show. (laughs) D.C.C. 90, The Dread God Al-Khazadir by Daniel J. Bishop. To save a city, to save a world. The end is nigh. A shadow falls on Punjar and panic fills the streets. This doom cannot be fought and it cannot be outrun. Unless, from the lightless depths below the city streets, you must find the way to Bequath and the indifference of the fate-denying Madka the clock is ticking. There will be no victory without sacrifice. Without the courage, cunning, and strength to face an immortal, your souls will surely fall prey
1: to the dread god Al-Khazadar.
0: So, Mark, tell us why you picked this one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, this is my choice. When I started reading The World of Tears, The Makers of the Universes, I realized that I'd only heard sort of peripheral things about uh, Daniel's bishop's relatively recent i think it was released last year possibly at
2: uh 16
1: oh 2016 so it's one of the the more
2: relatively recently relatively
1: recent number 90 in the the series you know is pretty new i didn't really know very much about it except for there was some sort of a mortal god and that got me to be intrigued and start reading through the adventure and there are so many maybe not so many parallels because i don't think daniel j bishop was trying to draw directly from the world of Tears but there are a lot of parallels to the setup in terms of that environment the and the way that this adventure plays out, but in a unique way. And I think that the way that he has some interesting push and pulls between the judge and the players with regards to accelerating the adventure, but maybe making the players own more of that than the judge traditionally does is a very creative aspect to this module. But just the- Yes, it is. And it's it's one that after reading it, I really, really wanted to to try and, and play. And I don't think that it has gotten a lot of community- discuss. For us. yeah. Right, and and I think this that's another reason to highlight it because Daniel Bishop is just I mean he, everything he writes I think is is excellent, and I think this is just another case of he's got a terrific adventure. It's very thematically similar to if you're looking for something that's associated or sociable with a you know with the world of tears or with similar types of technologies, sort of uh, crossing with planar aspects and and making just a just an intriguing and fun challenge for your play. This is, a, this is a really good adventure
2: and it's still approachable yes i have to say this is an excellent choice and i was saying before i am not such a big fan of doing that reskin thing this is the one that you would do for this book
1: because <laughs> yeah. yeah, if, if you were to
2: reskin it y- yeah i mean down to the tiny minutiae like the age affecting uh, imbibables you've got creatures that are very similar And that sudden change of scenery and atmosphere from your murder hobo roleplay to what is this thing? Why can't I touch it? And what happened when I broke it? And (laughs) (laughs) it's a really good balance.
0: Well, and I think getting to Mark's point that this this adventure hasn't seen a whole lot of community love. I think it's a question; it hasn't gotten a whole lot of community love yet, as DCC adventures go. It's level four, so it, it's certainly a higher level adventure. And there's people out there that have been playing for a couple of years that haven't gotten to level four yet. It's true. I I think as time goes on, more people are going to discover this adventure and everything it brings to the table, and they're going to be very glad they did. Because like Mark said, there's a reason that Daniel J. Bishop comes up at least every other episode, and that's (laughs) because... He is so prolific. Well, it's not okay. just that he's prolific; <laughs> it's that love, much like DCC itself, what he writes is so heavily steeped in appendix N, and, and dead on. yes. yeah, you could probably ask him about any single thing that he has written for DCC and he could probably tell you i drew inspiration from this appendix and novel or this series or this author because you can feel it you can feel it when you read his stuff it's there it's fantastic it's it's one of the great things about his work it so blends in with Everything that D and D was trying to be and mm-hmm. and didn't quite hit those notes, and with DCC Daniel Bishop is hitting those notes and fantastic. Love mm-hmm.
2: it. I do love it. The author's note, Mark, as you were saying about the pacing and the bottom line to the judges. If you get into a quandary, just think to yourself, what would Edgar Rice Burroughs do? And
1: <laughs> I think the other thing that I liked about this adventure after reading it was. They're one of the great adventures that I just loved running at a table because it presents the players with a very unusual choice at the end that doesn't often get used is intrigue at the court of chaos. And similar to that, this adventure has one of those moments that the players have to make a choice that is uncomfortable and and also is just unusual to ask of a table. And I and I think that it does it in a way that plays out with with the players not knowing what the consequences that that are. So it, it felt very similar to that feeling that I I think I really enjoyed you know taking my my group at my table through the entry at the court of chaos just because it was it was a campaign changing moment when they had to you know make it that, the decision that they did and it led to all sorts of consequences. I love those kind of ventures that don't play out in the sort of usual. You grab the the treasure and run, or you you defeat the the, the, the final boss and you level up sort of things. I mean, this, it's it's a great way of storytelling in a role-playing adventure and getting that storytelling to come out from the players themselves in a, in a unique way. So I think that's another thing this adventure can be applauded for. Very nice.
2: It is very awesome.
1: All right. Well, let's
0: move over to our road crew and convention shout outs. Of course, we will start out with... Super number, well, yeah, you know the contest. <laughs> <are> there. uh, <laughs> There's that thing. Let me uh, we uh, let me announce our May winner for the Super Number One Food Tower Contest was Mark Elsenheimer's map for the fate of the Ruthless Wizard. May's theme, of course, was maps. Mark gave us a great one, and our June winners. We had so much art. That was submitted during the entire run of this contest with monster submissions and and other things. And all of that qualified for the final drawing here. And Tom Wentz, Dreadnought, was fantastic. Mario Garcia's Drowning Man, to go with his monster, was wonderful. And The Wishler by Mars Homeworld. We had so much amazing art that... We drew three winners. Uh, there are no runners <laughs> up in our art contest. All three of them will be receiving a copy of Super Number One Food Tower North Texas 2015 Edition. And then, for at least a couple of months, we will close the prize closet of mystery. Just because it's like whimpering and and smoking back there. Uh-
2: <laughs> <laughs> Although it's become kind of infamous in and of itself on the interwebs, it's kind of
0: humorous. Well, yes, but (laughs) beyond just this contest, we also, thanks to support from our local, friendly local game store, Dungeon Games, we were able to go through the list of judges that had signed up for the Sanctum Secorum judges community for free RPG day. And some of them either were doing unofficial events because their town had no support and no, no game store giving support. Others gave away all of the copies of the free RPG day offering for DCC. And with thanks to dungeon games, every single one of those judges in that group that was looking for a copy is getting one from the prize closet of mystery so nice. it's it's been it's been really great it's it's been a good 6 months we'll see what happens come christmas
2: but before then pretty much public knowledge judge jeff has left new york but dcc rpg nyc carries on judge david willems will be at the brooklyn strategist running cry freedom and let slip the batman of venus on sunday july 15th at 4 p.m
1: awesome i'd love to see some tim callahan adventures mm-hmm. get let out into the world again yes m nixick is running dcc funnels from 2 to 6 p.m every saturday at tacoma games in tacoma washington Mighty Tim DeShane
0: is hosting a bi-weekly DCC campaign at the Revival Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island.
2: Judge Joan of Arc Troyer is running an open table every Thursday night from 6 to 10 p.m. at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. And she's at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana every other Saturday. As an added bonus, Judge Marlene Whitmer is running there on the alternate Saturdays.
1: Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Mike Carlson is running Open Table DCC Games on the 2nd and 4th Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6:30. Tim Lawchrist is running DCC
0: at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama every other Sunday. The next game should be held on July 15th. Check with the store for full details.
2: Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. Can, can we go to Chicago on Tuesday?
0: All hail beer <laughs> temple. <laughs>
1: the rosary will be heavy, but...
0: Oh. Mm.
1: <laughs> Contest winner Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Fun Again Games in Eugene, Oregon.
0: Congratulations to the road crew judges who survived Free RPG Day. Uh, Known DCC games were run in 112 cities worldwide, spanning five continents, ten countries, and a total of 43 U.S. states. Woohoo! Yeah, Uh, the judges just
2: listening to that.
0: (laughs) The judges of Texas, Mark, and Washington State should be especially proud. Managing to serve up DCC and MCC for Free RPG Day in seven different locations each
1: wow it's wow. great yeah well, florida Texas we only is hit bigger.
0: six
2: they're kind of a shoe-in
0: well, yeah, <laughs> the only, is stages. yeah that's awesome but it was phenomenal the the outpouring of dcc and mcc and even goodman games fifth edition
1: fantasy got a lot of love fantastic let's do it all again next year
2: it's what but it's all about I mean,
1: you, you guys had an epic session in florida and i really enjoyed the group that i got to play with on pre RPGA in austin so always a good time
0: And remember, the free RPG Day companion that was handed out at a lot of locations uh, worldwide, as it turns out, is available for download with all of our other companion issues. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you to all the publishers that gave me stuff to put in it.
1: Yeah, that was awesome.
2: Gen Con 51 with over 200 sold-out DCC games. Oh, my
1: gosh. Still has Mm -hmm. tickets
2: remaining for a small handful of DCC events, including... Elzamon in the Blood Drinking Box, hosted by Judge Carl Mandy. Dragora's Dungeon, hosted by Judge Tim Lauchrist. The Seven Pits of Caesarcon, hosted by Judge Trevor Stamper. The Tower Out of Time, hosted by Judge Daniel Dimitroff. And the DCC College, hosted by Harley Stroh. I Know a little something about that, and it's in the seminar category, and it's immediately before the What's New with Goodman Games seminar on Saturday night, so if you're at all interested, yeah, free tickets for that one.
0: Wait, 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 What's New with Goodman Games? DCC Seminar of Mystery!
1: (laughs) A little bit of breaking news in regards to the DCC tournament is we think we're going to be able to open up some more tournament slots for games.
2: Oh, wow. New
1: teams to join because the demand was so high. So double check uh, the Gen Con events page. If you are interested in trying to get in the tournament and you weren't able to, or you're interested because you've heard about it, there may be some more games that are being added. We certainly hope Gen Con gets through and approves them. So I can't say it's final, but we are—we uh, did have a really big demand this year, even with the expanded format. We've more than doubled mm-hmm. the amount of players from last year. We're going to try to add even yet more games to accommodate all the people that were interested.
2: And again, this is what it's
0: all about. Five Come years
1: join the from family reunion. We'll change its name to the Cezara Con and it'll be perfect. God, I hope so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that needs to happen.
1: <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode. Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. Zines, modules, even some great Appendix N. You can submit your creations to us at Hub at sanctum.media, or find us on the regular social media sites. Are you running road crew games? Drop us a line to let us know. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you've submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as last year's free RPG Day Companion and other secret benefits. Again, that's the hub at sanctum.media. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to sanctum.media and click on the community events link. Be sure to scroll all the way to the bottom for full venue and host judge information. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, please drop us an email, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G plus page, or help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Be sure to visit us on Google plus, mention us on Facebook. We hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening.
2: Thanks, everyone.
1: Be inspired. You have been listening to the
0: Sanctum Socorum Podcast. C. S. The Sanctum Socorum will return in September when the doors of the library open for the study of Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. <laughs> the Sanctum Socorum Podcast. Has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018.